Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about ophthalmic oncology with Drs. Flora Levin and Miguel Matarin. Dr. Matarin is Associate Professor of Medicine and of Ophthalmology and Visual Science and Director of Ophthalmic Oncology, and Dr. Levin is Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Ophthalmic oncology. Uh, wow, this is uh, something as an oncologist I don't think an awful lot about. What is it the two of you do? Do you do the same thing? Um, well, actually, what um, we deal with eye tumors, both benign and malignant, um, affecting the eye and the tissue surrounding it, um, including the um, eyelid and the eye per se, the surface of the eye and the orbit. Okay. Um, how many different kinds of eye cancers are there? More than you can imagine, more than one would think there are, and uh, I think that's something that our patients are always surprised by. They'll say, oh, I never thought I could get melanoma in my eye, oh. or uh, skin cancer on my eyelids, gotcha. or tumors behind the eye. Right. I mean, we've heard about retinoblastoma for little kids, right? Um, yes, we we do. Now, um, you know, every time we, we have... Um, interviews like this i mean it's not that's happening every every day but when we we talk, <laughs> but i can imagine it should be <laughs> well but something very that charismatic we would like to emphasize is this is um it's not a common condition so i don't want people who can hear uh this conversation you know to think that you know there is a problem in their eye and the first thing they're going to be concerned about is a tumor so it's not that common the thing is that because we specialized in in that that's why we see more patients maybe than the average ophthalmologist. Yeah, I would guess so. so how does somebody find out they have uh, an eye cancer? I mean, do I need to like be staring in my mirror every day when I'm shaving and like, you know, open up my eyelids and flashing the light around? I mean, I think Miguel and I, um, our subspecialties um, divide a little bit in that I can speak to the external um, aspects, the, sort of the periocular area and that affects Periocular, the, what does that mean? So the area around the eyelids, gotcha. um, around the eye, you know, the eyebrows, the forehead, the upper cheek, the side of the nose, the outer temple, you know, that's all That's all in the realm of what I would look at. It sounds like plastic surgery. That's pretty much it. That's You're absolutely right. It's plastic surgery that concentrates in that area, but also as an ophthalmologist, for me, I am educated and trained and very sensitive to conditions of the eye itself. Hmm. So are these mostly like skin cancers then that, that show up in those places? For me, yes. The, the vast majority of the oncology that I deal with is skin cancers on the outside of the eye, but also tumors behind the eyeball in the eye socket or the orbit. Um, and those tumors can be either new tumors or metastatic lesions that have spread from somewhere else. Wow. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do um, 
you know, with these various tumors, I imagine that these facial tumors, uh, people self-identify like you would anything on your face that gets diagnosed eventually as skin cancer or no? Sometimes and sometimes not. Because I think that people don't necessarily look uh, for stuff or think of stuff on their eyelids. And so often it gets referred from a general ophthalmologist who astutely recognize something while during an exam, or a dermatologist, hmm. especially in folks that have prior history hmm. of skin cancers. Gotcha. Um, and then uh, the vast majority of treatment is surgical um, and reconstructive, but there are some non-surgical options that we can offer as well. And what about these tumors behind the eye? That sounds pretty scary. Uh, they can be. Uh, a lot of them are benign. Uh, a lot of common things that we see will be benign and don't always require treatment. They can be followed. When they are uh, not benign, it's uh, a lot of times a multi-specialty approach to them because even though I may be involved in getting the diagnosis by doing the biopsy, the treatment may not be surgical. How does one biopsy a tumor behind the eye? There are ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's a trade secret you're not going to give away. I don't have to take the eyeball out. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, that's early. I don't know. I, I, you know. I don't know how you are, Susan, but eye surgery stuff just freaks me out. I and mean, that doesn't sound very medical, but well, I, I know that the eye, we, uh, as, as radiation oncologists, I've been here since the day that we, we actually started the comms project here with the uh, plaques. So I actually participated in these cases um, almost 20 years ago, I think, with some oh. of my colleagues. And it really was fascinating to see exactly what you could do to, to gain exposure to that area and then put it all back together. And you didn't freak out. It did bother me a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, that's, that's an important uh, point because um, people in general, they, they do not think that the eye, can, the question is who can have a tumor in the eye? Right. Um, but yes, it does exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I once had an ophthalmologist, I mean, I have a nevus, a, a mole in my, on my retina, I guess, or wherever it is back there. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden that was kind of scary to have an ophthalmologist say, well, you know, we're going to have to follow this and take pictures every couple of years and, and make sure it's not melanoma. It's like, whoa, that's pretty scary. Well, that, actually, that's what, what, what we do most of the time. You know, m- most of our patients are referred by other physicians because, again, from, because of the specialty. So, Miguel, you don't deal with these facial things, and you don't deal behind the eyeball? No, I Which deal, part of the eyeball do you deal well, with? Well, the surface of the eye and the intraocular tumors, tumors inside the eye. Huh. So what kinds of cancers are those? Are those metastatic, or are they primary cancers? Well, they can be primary, which means that um, you know they originate in the eye, or they can come from other sites or other cancers, like lung and breast. They are the most common ones when they spread into the eye. Into the eye? Yes. In, in the primary cancers that they originate from the eye, in adults, uh, the most common one is the melanoma, and in young kids, um, retinoblastoma. Hmm. So... When you talk about melanoma in the eye, it's not a metastatic lesion from a skin. Uh, m- most of the time, it is not. Um, um, originates origin- uh, originates from from the eye. Yes, uh, the eye actually is the uh, after the um, the skin is the second place most common. And, and why is it? Are there uh, the the melanocyte cells? In the retina or in the eyeball somewhere? Well, actually, is um, is a structure behind the retina called uh, choroid, and the choroid is a bed of blood that has melanocytes, and that's where these melanomas can originate in the eye. 
I never really learned uh, ophthalmic anatomy, I have to say. Uh, the choroid has always been very perplexing to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not joking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's fascinating. So um, can, uh, can these tumors be treated with curative intent? Um, yes. Again, we need to, um, to discuss each tumor is different and each patient is different. Um, so... Um, Let's, if we start talking about the, uh, the retinoblastoma, the, the, the tumors that can affect uh, young kids, the good news is that um, it's one of the most uh, curable tumors in the human body. So more than 90% of these kids can be cured from the cancer, at least in, um, in this country. Uh, which is not the same situation in third world countries. Hmm. Um, that does not mean it's easy, um, but um, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's, a, it's a team effort because it's not only Dr. Levin and Dr. Matter in his uh, pediatric oncology involved. Uh, it's uh, sometimes neuro-oncology involved, um, neurovascular, neurovascular surgeons, and, um, in, et cetera. So it, it's, it's a whole team effort. Um, and I would like to include the nurses and you know our assistants because they need to 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 talk to these patients and these families. Sure, um, they're the front end, know, right? Every every week. Um, so that's regarding the uh, retinoblastoma. Regarding the melanoma, um, it's um, I know it's the same name than the uh, melanoma of the skin, but um, their behavior is not like the one on the skin. As an example, you know, when the, the melanoma from the skin uh, spreads, most of the time goes to the lymph nodes first. Uh, when melanoma in the eye spreads, the most common place that it goes is the liver. Liver? Yes. I would have guessed maybe the brain because it would seem like it could creep right along the optic nerve. Yeah. We, we really don't know why the liver, but that's the most common place for metastasis. And second, the lungs. Hmm. And... Um it's a little off topic, I suppose, but um, are people studying the the biology of these melanomas compared to skin melanomas to see? Yes, and that's an excellent question, actually, because um, that's one of the reasons um, uh, their behavior is different, too. Um, so actually, not every melanoma of the skin has the same gene mutations or gene alterations than, you know, when they are exposed, they are due to exposure to the sun. And by the way, melanoma in the eye, at least until today, it's not related to the sun exposure. Um, so yes, there are specific mutations for melanomas inside the eye. Hmm. And um, another question I wanted to ask you about that. Um, is we know that the melanomas of the skin tend to be increased in uh, fair-skinned individuals and so on. Is that also the case of melanoma of the eye? Or Yes, it is. It's, okay. it's more common in, um, in white people. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, uh, and one point that I would like to make also is that um, diagnosis of uh, intraocular tumor does not mean we need to remove the eye. So there are other methods, and Susan is uh, glad she's here from radiation oncology because we work with them all the time, I can say, every week. Huh. Right, so we've used this uh, team approach, radiation oncology and ophthalmic oncology, uh, to uh, get some really good outcomes in these people. And I was wondering if you could talk about the range of options for people uh, with um, melanoma 
and uh, of the eye and how you're basically where radiation fits into it, where other therapies fit in? Well, as long as we can save the eye, we will try to use conservative methods. And, and the main one is, you know, local radiation. Um, so we do that, you know, in two surgeries. We put like a small coin on the surface of the eye, exactly where the tumor is. Patient stays in the uh, in the hospital for four days, and then we take back the patient to the operating room and to remove the radiation device. <clears throat> when we cannot, um, when we have no chance to save the eye, that's when um, we we think about removing the eyes, and that's you know part of uh, Dr. Levin's work too. Hmm. And uh, even on the side of radiation, we have a whole team behind the scenes because these plaques are a very specialized uh, uh, type of instrument to treat this. And uh, we have physicists, the radiation oncologist. We actually come back from the OR and do all the calculations in terms of dose and how long the plaque should be there. And it's, it's really, uh, I think, for gra very gratifying for the radiation oncologist because um, we treat these patients and, and have some very good outcomes. Where does the plaque sit? On top of the eye or inside the eye? Or? Well, exactly where uh, we localize where the tumor is and um, if sometimes it's in the, in the eye but in the, in the posterior part of the eye. And, you know, we need to do some. We don't remove the eye to place the plaque. Uh, we just rotate the eye. He knows that I'm going to freak out if he tells me that, right? <laughs> so, um, yes, we, we localize. We're very... If I can use the term compulsive about where the tumor I'm is, glad, and, and, I'm glad. I'm glad. And, and actually, you know, after the um, once the plaque is placed, we use an ultrasound to be sure that the plaque is right behind the tumor. And the, but the plaque is right. It's on the surface of the eye. It's on the eye wall. Oh, I, I see. It's not inside the eye. No, it's not inside. We suture the plaque to the eye wall. And they stay in the hospital for four days? Uh, yes, it's more a precaution for other people. We don't want, you know, uh, patients with a radiation device walking around. You definitely don't want to walk through the sensors in the airport, right? Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about ophthalmic oncology with Dr. Miguel Madarin and Dr. Flora Levin. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins, along with my co-host, Dr. Stephen Gore, and we're talking with our guest, Dr. Miguel Madarin and Dr. Flora Levin about ophthalmic oncology. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So one of uh, the issues that we discussed uh, during our last session uh, prior to the break was retinoblastoma. Maybe you could just tell the, the listeners what exactly retinoblastoma is and what the treatment approaches are and how you fit into that picture. Um, retinoblastoma is the most common intraocular primary tumor in, in, your, in young kids. Um, 
in it can affect one eye or can affect both eyes. Um, also, it can be uh, a familiar condition that the different members of the same family can have that. Uh, so there is a genetic component in 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 some circumstances. Um, you know, one of the main points that we discuss with the, with the parents, with the family, is that the diagnosis of retinoblastoma does not mean removing the eyes. Does not mean the kid is going to be blind. Yes, it's a cancer. It's curable. And our first goal is to save the, the baby's life. And as I mentioned before, more than 90% of these kids can be saved from that. There are different methods to treat these patients, and it depends on how you know how many tumors uh, the the kid has, how many um, if one or both eyes are involved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the most um, I cannot say the most common, but the, the most recent treatment, and we do have um, we do that treatment here at, at Yale, is what is called intraarterial chemotherapy. So. Um, a vascular, uh, pediatric vascular surgeon finds the femoral artery, which is in the leg, and place a catheter that goes um, with the, um, it's done by the uh, interventional neuroradiologist, and, and he, uh, Dr. Bulsara is his name, um, he, um, he puts the catheter right behind the eye. And that's uh, in um, in the um, internal carotid uh, um, artery, and then they find the ophthalmic artery, and that's where the chemotherapy is injected. Uh, it requires most of the time more than one session once a month. Uh, that's I could I can say the number one treatment today. The second treatment is systemic chemotherapy. That the chemotherapy it's is uh, provided to the entire body. Um, and then, you know, when we have no choice, um, you know, Dr. Levin has to be involved and sometimes when, you know, she needs to remove the eyes. So uh, I find this really fascinating. Again, trained, I was trained in the era as a radiation oncologist where um, the mainstay was radiation enucleation. We had only two choices and now uh, we have a whole team of people, um, as you, you just discussed, and I just, could you just basically uh, fill us in on how your team works together and, and do you have tumor boards? How do you communicate? Well, most of the time, you know, um, they're referring doctors. The patients are referred by, um, by another physician. Uh, there is a phone call or an email, and, and that's when um, our assistant um, um, received this email from us, and she sends uh, an email and a, a communication to everybody that is going to be involved. So before we even know the patient, we know that the patient is coming and everyone is aware that we're going to be seeing that kid. So we need to see the baby with general anesthesia. That's when we make the decision. Then pediatric oncology will see uh, the, the baby and will talk with the parents too. And then that's when uh, the, uh, the other doctors who are involved, they're gonna see the baby too. So it's like, um, you know, as I said, we know that it's coming before the baby comes. And then we rally the troops and, and bring them in and- Well, our goal is to have the baby treated within, within a week. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so, and these babies, they need MRIs. So the MRI, the imaging people, they are aware of this and they, they give 
these priorities so we can have the babies treated within a week. How old are these babies in general? Well, it can be from as young as few days to, you know, I would say between the first two or three years of life, but, you know, I've seen that in older kids too. Again, and I would like the audience to know that it's a very, uh, there are only 250 cases, new cases in United States per year. So mm. it's a very uh, uncommon situation. One of the interesting things, though, and this was recently in the news, there's a specific sign that a child with retinoblastoma could have that probably, if you see it, should not be ignored. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, this this cannot be ignored at all. It's a cancer. Right. Um, well, in the in reflection of yeah, in so the eye. Yeah, so most of the, um, um, if I can say, commercials or advertisements, or let, let me call these education videos, mm -hmm. um, um, it's like there is um, many times there is a white reflex uh, in one of the eyes or the, pa or the parents say that the, uh, the eye look funny and it said there is some glare or there is a shifting eye. Uh, so that's when, you know, at least they need to see the pediatrician and then the pediatric ophthalmologist and they're going to do their exam and if it's needed they're going to refer the patient to us. That's great. Um, and so we had another, just to digress into another area, we were talking about uh, during the break tumors around the eye and how those can be treated. Uh, again, it's really a team approach. And I was going to ask Dr. Levin if she can uh, really kind of outline what kind of tumors do we find around the eye and how does your team work to get the, uh, the excellent outcomes? So the most common tumor that we see of the skin around the eye is a basal cell carcinoma, which is the same as most common tumor of the skin in general. But we do see uh, squamous cell carcinoma. We see melanoma. And we also see tumors of the eyelids that are a little bit more prevalent and specific to the eyelids themselves um, that are much more rare, something called sebaceous cell carcinoma or Merkel cell carcinoma. And those can be difficult to diagnose because other things can masquerade or present themselves as benign. So a sty, especially in an older person that doesn't go away with treatment or comes back after treatment, it's something that needs to be looked at carefully and often biopsy to exclude something that's more serious. Although a sty is obviously much more common than a cancer. Um, and so the treatment uh, is geared towards the specific lesion. Um, obviously, it's First, the first goal is to eliminate the lesion, and a lot of these can be cured. And then two, it's aesthetics and function. So um, for the eyelid, function is very, very important because it's not just how it looks, but also how it protects the eyeball, covers the eyeball, uh, lubricates the eyeball. So it's we want to reconstruct the eyelid in the best manner that it functions and looks uh, as well as it can. And um, in the vast majority of cases, you'd be surprised that even something that affects the entire eyelid, so we're talking about not a lot of, not a lot of real estate, about three centimeters, but something that can affect the whole upper or, eye, up or lower eyelid can be reconstructed in a manner that is uh, very pleasing, both, both aesthetically and functionally. Um, we still rely on surgery as the mainstay of treatment for most of these tumors. Um, in certain circumstances, um, in elderly patients or in patients in whom surgery is not the best option, we can use radiation, we can use certain topical agents or chemotherapy. Um, 
but surgeries still we rely on the most. Um, and the type of surgery um, and what I'm talking about namely is whether we use Mohs surgery, Mohs micrographic surgery, or something called frozen section controlled excision, which is kind of similar um, but slightly different. Uh, really depends for me where the lesion is. So the goal of the surgery is to spare as much healthy tissue as possible, obviously, especially talking about the eyelid where the real estate is so limited. Um, and really, it's a decision of um, how much of the eyelid is affected and how, what the best method of reconstruction may be. So sometimes, even though with, in theory, with frozen section excision where the surgeon takes the tumor, sends it to pathology at the time of the surgery, the pathologist looks at the edges and, clar and tells the surgeon whether all of the tumor is gone or not, even though I may have to remove a little bit more extra healthy tissue for reconstructive purposes, that may be the most efficient way of doing it. Whereas somewhere else that's not on the eyelid precisely around, maybe on the closer to the forehead or the cheek or the temple, a most surgeon will be better equipped to spare as much healthy tissue as possible. And then the reconstructive methods are as vast as plastic surgery itself. You know, we can use grafts, we can use flaps, we can move tissue around. And generally, the one thing that I think patients are surprised by is it takes time. You have to be patient, but the outcome is good. You just have to get yourself, as a team, we have to get you through the immediate post-operative period. So the reconstruction is not done at the time of the primary surgery? It depends. So if I, if I work with a Mohs surgeon, um, we can do it on the same day, and the patient just goes from one place physically to another place, uh, but it doesn't have to be. Um, there are days when we'll, we'll separate it by a few days or a week, and especially for larger lesions, that's sometimes something that you want to do because you can plan accordingly. Um, obviously, if the excision and the reconstruction is being done at the same time, then it's all a um, one procedure. Um, done by by the same person. Um, for other for non skin cancer tumors, um, uh, some of the treatments are not surgical. So, uh, for instance, one of the more common malignancies that um, I biopsy is lymphoma, and um, I see it uh, on the inside of the eyelids. We also see it in the eye socket, um, and that can be in patients with a prior history of lymphoma or new lesions that get diagnosed as lymphoma. And the treatment for lymphoma is radiation therapy most of the time, not surgery. So my role is just to get the diagnosis, get a piece of the tissue to establish the diagnosis. And it's incredible how in the last few years we've been able to more and more precisely identify these tumors with genetic and cytology markers, et cetera. And again, it's, it's a team effort. Um, and then refer the patients to oncologists, radiation oncologists, and get them treated in the most effective manner. Yes, and um, you know, having treated some of these patients in the past and gone through the diagnostic procedures and worked with the, the team, it's really important to have a pathologist who really knows how to look at a lymphoma and, and get the subtype because um, they're highly curable, but the treatments have to be coordinated and targeted uh, correctly. And you know, most of the tertiary care centers, as we know, have specific lymphoma pathologists. And I think that's a really important member of our team. And I think a lot of the, the public doesn't realize that there are people in pathology, they're not just general pathologists, they do this as their, their main job and they help our team uh, tremendously. Absolutely. As are ophthalmic pathologists, there are people within pathology who specialize within eye um, conditions and eye tumors and, and so just like dermatopathology. So absolutely, you couldn't be more right. I mean, the one thing that for me is the most disappointing um, 
fact, which I'm going to knock on wood, which you can't hear, but it, it, it's never happened to me, but um, is to do a biopsy and not get a diagnosis. So we do mm. everything we possibly can to make sure that we provide ample specimen, that we send it in the correct manner, um, that it can be looked at, um, and the patient can be given the right diagnosis in a timely fashion. And it's interesting, uh, just to digress about the pathology issue, because uh, I work with the NCCN, and, and we're actually incorporating this issue of getting an expert pathologic diagnosis into the guidelines. Um, again, because there are specific diseases like sarcoma, lymphoma, where it really takes someone who does many of these cases per year to do it well. Susan, I don't think our audience knows what the NCCN is. You might just want to mention. Um, so the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is a group of institutions that are sort of select institutions that are being basically uh, a part of a large network of cancer centers and the people who are involved in the NCCN, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, we are working on guidelines uh, that are really supposed to be the, the standard of care for all of the diseases. And uh, I was just on two conference calls last week, um, and we spend actually quite a bit of time putting together these expert recommendations. Um, and uh, we're we're now actually about to export some of these to other countries, and we're thinking about resource-based guidelines, but really trying to lead the doctors and the public, there are, there are guidelines geared toward the public also, um, and get them to follow some of these pathways and really know where to go for the best care and the most expertise. Dr. Flora Levin is Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Miguel Matarin is Associate Professor of Medicine and of Ophthalmology and Visual Science and Director of Ophthalmic Oncology. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.